Welcome back, everybody, to TBD with Bill and Dan. Good afternoon, good evening. This time we're bringing you a story where great minds think alike because they have to. That's right. We're talking about a really, really obscure short story early in the career of Dean Koontz, back when he couldn't figure out... We like obscure. Yeah, we like obscure. And we like pulling in stuff by authors when they were still kind of forming up who they were and who they wanted to be. And this one is no exception. It's a piece of science fiction from 1972, originally published in an anthology called Infinity 3, again, by Dean Koontz, who many of you probably know better as a horror writer. And as far as I know, it is not republished anywhere else that I could find. So if you can lay your hands on a copy of this book, that's great, because mine actually fell apart while I was reading the story. The binding gave way. This is one where... Uh, people talk about a lot of stuff that Dean Koontz has done. He has he has biographers. He has people who've written like guides to his worlds. And I have never heard mention of this story. <laughs> and the dude was born in 1945 and is still kicking out stories and movie scripts and all sorts of things. So he's still going strong. Yeah, and you know the crazy thing is that at the point when he was writing this, well, or at least there's a reference to within a couple of years. He was writing as many as eight different novels a year under as many as 10 different pseudonyms. So the guy was just cranking stuff out. It was it was sci-fi. It was horror. It was fantasy. It was gothic romance and even erotica. Although there was somebody tried to track it down. They looked up all of his all of his pen names that he admits to and they couldn't find a single example of erotica under any of those pen names. So there's probably still secrets that are being kept from us. (laughs) There's always secrets that are being kept with us. Yeah, probably some that should. You know, the Illuminati control all. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know that uh, you know Dean Koontz is certainly most well-known for you know horror, suspense kind of genre, but it turns out he did spend his early career writing like 12 science fiction novels. I think his first one was called something like Star Quest in the late 60s. But um, anybody nowadays probably knows him as the author of the Odd Thomas series, which I personally have not seen, but have heard about. I think that, you know, came around in 2013, 2014-ish, and um, I guess there's been several sequels and movies made out of it. So, like I said, he's uh, he's still kicking around and, and is still apparently fairly well regarded in the community. So the Odd Thomas stories have been turned into movies. I saw the first one. Uh, it had the, the, the dude who plays Chekhov in Star Trek. Um, is it Anton Yelchin? The guy who, who died, sadly, under like his Jeep backed over him somehow or something like that. What could be. I'm not familiar with that story. Well, anyway, the story at hand is Alter Boy. Oh, yeah. We actually have a story we're supposed to be talking about. That's right. So, Dan, what's the story about? Paint us a picture. Well, as I said before, this is a story. Um, it's kind of an odd mix of politics and horror and science fiction all kind of put together. If you look at some of the characters, um, basically the the main character is a guy who, well, we call him the Executioner, which refers to what he does, who doesn't seem to have an actual name in the story, but what he does is he is an Executioner. So that kind of right off the bat tells you what kind of story this is going to be. Yeah, and, and he's working on behalf of a government that is completely based on consensus, so there's a consensus bureau, and it is organized by, is it seven consensus coordinators? We don't meet all of them. 
Yeah, seven sounds about right. I know there's a, a part where they talk about they're kind of like the governing body, and essentially what they the way society is organized is everything is kind of put to a vote, or they call it a poll. And if you don't vote the way the government wants you to, they basically track you down and say, are you sure you want to vote that way? And if you say yes, they go, are you really sure you want to vote that way? And if you still say yes, they kill you. So after a few generations of this, pretty much everybody in society agrees with whatever the government wants to do, as you can imagine. The few who do actually disagree are called dissenters. And uh, the executioner basically is the guy who, well, he does some very peculiar things with the dissenters, especially with their mind slash soul. Yeah, there's a, a team of people called espers. So they're all people that have psionic abilities and, and they are carefully cultivated within the society. The implication is that they, they keep an eye out for people who show the abilities that they need and then they educate them or train them or whatever it is. Some of them become these espers who are basically psionic warriors who kill people with thoughts. And then some of them are executioners who actually, they, they don't do the actual killing. They, they pull the soul from the person who has been attacked by the esper and they take that soul and store it inside of themselves. So in effect, killing them, yes, but... It's a combination of their action with the espers. Yeah, we don't really want to get too deep into the whole metaphysics of you know mind versus right. consciousness versus souls, but they do make some kind of distinction that you can pull the soul out of a person, and the person can still be alive, but is basically mindless or you know has no ability to exhibit any independent thought. You know, they'll just do whatever you tell them. Yeah, they have no motivation or direction. Exactly. So, so they do have this odd distinction between soul and mind. And, and it's interesting because the implication is they figure that if somebody is killed for a cause, then they become a martyr and that martyr becomes the symbol of whatever the cause is all about and they can rally more people around them. But if you don't necessarily kill them, you take their soul and you imprison it in the executioner's mind, which is exactly what happens. They, they, the executioner takes the soul, it's imprisoned in the executioner's mind along with all the other ones he's taken, and therefore the person is still alive in a sense, so you can't really call them a martyr, and they exist imprisoned in the executioner's mind until such time as the executioner dies, which apparently in this society can be something like several hundred years. Yeah, there's the implication... And the executioner even thinks about it at one point that he thinks that the act of taking souls actually extends his life artificially. And so at the time of the story, he's I need the blood of the young people. Yes, there you go. So it's this weird sort of vampiric thing, but then it's it's state vampirism. So that's that's an oddity. Well, before we get too far into the weeds with the story, two other characters to mention really quickly, Harrison Bonifex who we can't really tell what his role is. Perhaps he's he's the like the face of the government. He isn't given a title, but he's the one who introduces the polls and reminds people of their responsibilities to the state and so on, and it explains what the stakes are and all of that kind of stuff. And then there is one more character that gets introduced who is uh, characterized by the name of Weisner, who is a... Nazi sympathizer from the early 70s, which is in the past. 1972, to be exact. 
Right. So the story was published in 1972. That's when Kuntz was contemporary. But the story itself is futuristic, and it comes back to his time at some point. And there's one other character uh, that we should mention by the name of Jennifer, who oh, yes. is one of the souls that is imprisoned in the executioner's mind. And she has a very interesting role fairly late in the story. Yeah. Anyway, uh, do you want to kick it off with the first scene, Bill? I can certainly do that. The executioner keeps having these strange dreams. Uh, it's these sort of nightmares, basically, of these metallic feet jumping, dancing on this giant timpani, this, this drum skin. And it is always significant of the souls within him trying to find a way out of their prison in his mind. And so he makes reference as he comes awake from this nightmare to realizing that one of the souls, Jennifer, in fact, is attempting to claw its way out of this silvery pool of this sort of well of souls, so to speak. And this one soul keeps finding a way to get past the first several layers of defenses that he maintains through mental discipline, and she has been putting him under duress. She's almost ready to escape, or she's basically trying to. And he wakes up, and, and he thinks that he's getting her under control, and he's pushing her back down into the pit. And what he doesn't realize fast enough is that in the act of turning on her, a bunch of others start creeping up the other way and he loses track of them and they, and they kind of they start to overwhelm him and so the whole opening scene is him realizing oh no these souls that i've been keeping in prison in me he makes reference at one point to, to having somewhere in the neighborhood of three hundred thousand souls trapped within him uh, just a fraction of what he's capable of, of trapping he believes but some of them are becoming more and more aggressive and more effective at getting out he starts to stumble from his apartment. He stumbles out into the hallway. People see him as he like sort of walks into traffic, basically, as people are walking by. He passes out, and people come to his aid. Fortunately, there's, uh, as I think Bill mentioned earlier, there's these people called espers who have the ability to look into people's minds, see what's going on. He apparently runs across a couple of these people. They realize, hey, this executioner is in trouble. They get some other people who can go into his mind and essentially help the executioner fight off all of the souls who are trying to take over, push him back where they belong, and get the executioner back on his feet where he can start functioning again. So essentially a, a, a close call. And there's reference made to people who can't do their jobs get reassigned. It's a major embarrassment, apparently, if you let the souls escape, if you're an executioner, essentially. Well, and, and that's where I was going with that, is that he, as an executioner, he's one very rare. So the entire city that he lives in has 9 million people, and they only have five executioners. They're hard to find. It takes years to train them. And he's been very successful at this for a long time. And so he wants very much to maintain this, this place, and they want very much to see him successful. So what they do is they prop him up. And these espers help him out. But they he represents this this major investment of at least time. But he's certainly a very important person within their system of government. But but he wants to find a way to, to set things right. And they give him a lot of latitude because of his role. So he gets a few chances. And, that, and we see those some of those chances playing out here in the story as it continues. So he ends up meeting with uh, a guy by the name of Consensus Coordinator Magnuson, who apparently is kind of in charge of a lot of people, including the executioners. You know, they kind of go over, Bill discussed, like, hey, this is kind of a close call. 
you know, they start talking about the society they live in, you know, a little bit of background about the, as we discussed earlier, when I, I mentioned the polls and the voting system, they kind of go into this little discussion about how all that works and, and kind of expostulate on that for a little bit. Uh, they talk a little bit about the current political situation, which is that their society is considering going to war with the Sino-Turkish coalition about some type of land extension, land grab. Uh, they talk about the dissenters that are the ones that they imprison and the fact there's fewer and fewer of them over the years. And essentially, then we kind of get into this whole description of they, they show how a poll is conducted and it starts out with, hey, the this guy Harrison Bonifax gets on the line on the TV, whatever it is, discusses the poll and says, hey, do you want war or not? Let's see what the results are. You know, 90-some percent agree. He goes on to say, oh, you know, anybody who uh, didn't agree the first time, here's your next chance, and so on and so forth. And apparently they get to like, you know, 99% or 99-point-something percent of the people all end up in agreement uh, because obviously they know if they don't, they're going to get executed. And this is how they achieve consensus over several generations of this having gone on. I think the story is set something like 800 years in the future. There's reference to how in the past we did not have enough consensus. And so it led to indecision and it led to social turmoil and so on and dissatisfaction among the people. So they've been working on this system of consensus and dissensus for multiple generations. And they, they feel like they have society turned into a well-oiled machine. And in the buildup to that discussion of the poll, there's this interesting paragraph where the executioner is, um, he's talking with Magnuson and he's thinking, our lives were dotted like fly-specked windowsills with the marks of one crisis after the other. So there's, they, they have these polls constantly. And, and it's all about building this sense of, of consensus, of course, but it's about building this sense of societal connection. Which they call democracy, by the way. Right. Yet we were frightened by them and moved continually to nationalistic paranoia. Perhaps it was the nightly subliminals the consensus government had long ago voted into effect to help reestablish patriotism in people sadly lacking in it. So they have manufactured a sense of nationalism and, and patriotic pride through a combination of these polls where they kill the people who dissent and through nightly bombardment of subliminal messages that are all about, <laughs> you know, drink Coke, vote Magnus. So everything is built around control from this very centralized, small crew of people who are in charge of things. And everything is built around continuing or, or building and maintaining the sense of consensus and connection. Right, which, of course, they call, as I said before, democracy because everyone gets to vote. And what they don't mention is that they've manufactured what the outcome of every vote's going to be, which really doesn't make it democracy, but, hey, that's what they're calling it 800 years from now. So in this particular case, of course, they run the poll. They've got this fraction of the population, what is it, like 100 or so, that end up being the dissenters. They're all marched into the execution chamber where the correlators of the consensus, who are this you know, sort of governing body, pass judgment on them. Um, as we mentioned before, the executioners show up, they, they take the souls, and the bodies of the dissenters are basically, you know, their mind is exploded and their bodies are carted off. Um, however, during this particular execution, Jennifer, who we mentioned before, takes this particular opportunity to once again lead a revolt of the, all the souls trapped in the executioner's mind 
And like, you know, thousands, so thousands of these souls start rising up in the executioner's brain, trying to take over again. And once again, the, the other people in the chamber, you know, notice this is going on. They, they jump in again and, and help him out. But uh, obviously it's, it's clear that this is becoming a problem for this particular executioner, that he can't maintain control over, over the souls that he's got trapped inside of his mind. And so, yeah, he has to be rescued by the espers again. And again, because he represents this incredibly important part of their society, they, they're not going to give up on him. They're not going to let him succumb to this. And, and it's uncertain at this point. So if they were to let him die, what happens to the souls in him? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they all die with him. That's, that's the implication that was there. They don't get released because there's nowhere for them to go. They don't have bodies anymore. But that's the thing is that they, they are, some of them have been stored inside of him for many, many years. Some of them, of course, are much more recent, including in this, in this scene. But the bottom line is, again, they, they, they want to try to find a solution. And it turns out that they do have a standard operating procedure for dealing with these kinds of things, but they do it as a last resort. And, and that is where we turn to next. <laughs> yes, where they get the most important espers of all who can apparently do time travel. There's only two of them. They're apparently their ability to go through time is somewhat limited, but they decide they're going to go back to 1972 to Washington, D.C. and pick up this guy by the name of Weissman, who, as we mentioned before, he's this you know Nazi party member. He's pretty much mentally unstable. He's on the verge of suicide, and he's just about to pull the trigger when the espers show up with uh, the executioner. And he's like, what's going on here? Where'd you guys come from? And they proceed to explain that they're from the future and what they're going to do with them. Weissman, apparently, who is half insane already, goes, oh, cool. Yeah. You want me to do what? Yeah, no problem. And uh, they basically put Weissman into the executioner's mind, let him, or what's left of him, they, they blow his brains out, leave him in 1972. And they have given Weissman a new job. He's called the warden inside the executioner's mind. Yeah, so his, his basically his, his job is to get in amongst these 300,000 souls that are trapped inside of the executioner and cause enough mayhem to keep them occupied so that none of them think about trying to break out again. Yeah, he's the jailer now. So instead of the executioner having to deal with all these minds, he's got this you know, semi-half-mad guy who's on a power trip who says, hey, I can do whatever I want. I can torture all these souls, whatever. This is cool. I'm up with it. And since I'm having a good time here in the executioner's head, I'm not going to bother revolting or doing anything else. And the executioner can go on about his normal day. And so for a time, it works. So this is a solution that they've implemented before. They make reference to that. And it's always worked before. And although the executioner has some concerns because this guy isn't mentally stable, the espers say, nope, this is going to stabilize him. He's going to solve your problems. Trust us. We know what we're doing. He's just what you need. And of course, he trusts them. And of course, they don't know what they're doing. And everything goes awry. Yes, it doesn't work out very well. It doesn't, it doesn't take too long for things to come unraveled, but there is this, this little moment where everybody thinks, oh, we've solved the problem and the executioner's all set. And then, of course, the inevitable happens where Weissman indeed completely loses his grip on sanity and uses his insanity as a wedge to essentially take over the executioner's mind and starts the executioner on a path which takes him to 
Well, let's say he he starts to do some very interesting things. He starts to search out some of the coordinators, right? The people who are the, the government heads. And he goes in there and essentially rips out their souls, turns them into mindless drones where Weissman can now tell them what to do. So Weissman's running the show, right? He's using the executioner's mental powers to go through the heads of government and take everything over and do whatever it is he wants to do. Yeah, and so Weissman basically becomes the government of this country. And remember, back in 1972, he was he was a member of the Nazi party. And so he begins this quest for world domination, and he's in a position where he can begin to make these things happen. And now he becomes the head of a state that is completely built around consensus. And so he begins setting up polls that are going to make it clear that the country is going to war. They're going to they're gonna start with Canada, then they're going to go after the, the Turco-Say-No coalition, and, and they're going to keep going from there. Yeah, and the executioner, you might wonder what happened to him. He's now trapped inside his own mind, and he's essentially in the same position as all the souls he absorbed earlier, where he can observe and see what's going on, but can't really participate in anything. He sees what Weissman is doing and you know, Noah's Weissman has the ability and the, the will and the drive to do this and witnesses all this and thinks there's, you know, quote, there is no end to what we will become. And basically he realizes that the, the biggest problem with consensus is that consensus is, as he puts it, soulless. Yes, any consensus is soulless, it reads. And without a soul, anything that can be imagined can be performed without remorse. It is Weissman's, or Weissman's great strength that he has seen this. So this guy's insanity and his, his worldview, uh, you know, based on, on fascism, basically says, oh, this is a perfect storm. I could do anything I want and, and sets about doing so. And in the, the final coup de grace, we find out that the executioner, who, as you may remember, was dealing with this entity called Jennifer. It turns out Jennifer was actually his ex-wife, who he had imprisoned, and now he is trapped inside his own head along with the soul of her. And we get some implication in there at the very end that Jennifer is the person that helped Weissman take over the executioner's mind, probably as some type of revenge for her being imprisoned in the first place. Yeah, and earlier in this story, there's this scene where the executioner is trying to figure, he's like, this this soul, this Jennifer, like she seems to know me. She seems to know how to get through my defenses. She seems to know how to mess with my head. And then, of course, the revelation at the end, oh, it's his wife. (laughs) No wonder she knows how to get inside of his head. (laughs) Implication, of course, being that he's had some work done in his own mind. If he can't remember that he's imprisoned his own wife inside of his head. So apparently those espers are pretty busy. Yeah. So it is it's a story that has a bleak ending. There's there there's there's no redemption here. There's no setting the world to right or anything like that. The psychos have taken over the asylum and and the asylum is has declared war on the rest of the world. The end. Yeah, the end. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> Gosh, this is like shades of Harlan Ellison here. Yeah, this definitely, well, again, it is, it is, you know, borderline horror suspense and, you know, partial science fiction. So not a big surprise that it ends up in that, that particular Venn diagram. Right. So what are we supposed to learn from this story, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's, what's our big moral takeaway? Well, 
you know, it's funny because when we first read this, and you had proposed that, that we consider this one, and I read it and I thought, My wow, fault. that thing is warped. And wow, is that thing dark. And at the same time, I thought, oh, but I, I kind of like it. And and we, we'd set it aside and we were working with other material. And, and as I came back to this, when we started getting to the point where we're actually going to do an episode around it, when I reread it, it made me realize that this is very much to me a 1970s, especially early 1970s sci-fi. There's a lot of stuff that it's reminiscent of for me. And it's very much a Dean Koontz story. Like I've, I've read many of his novels. Most recently I read Midnight, which is also, it's it's a horror novel that that edges over into sci-fi. This is a sci-fi story that that edges over into horror. So this is this is Dean Koontz. This is the roots of him. Absolutely. And of course, because it's, this is the dude. But like the more that I read it, the more I realized it makes sense to me as a product of its time and as a product of the mind that created it. Yeah, he explores a number of different facets of philosophy and politics under the guise of this particular story. You know, the, the most important thing, I think, is he's kind of pointing out the, the role of disagreement in society and, and the dangers of what happens if you try to limit that disagreement and try to force, you know, what does he call it, consensus, and the, the danger of what can happen to a society where, that, where that's the case. He describes himself at one point in an interview as socially progressive fiscally conservative and pretty much libertarian in every other way. And so, and, and he's also someone who converted to Catholicism like sometime in his what twenties or thirties or something like that. And so he's someone where values matter, uh, a, a sense of community matters, concepts like responsibility and redemption matter. He writes a lot of stuff that, that hints at the existence, or, or, or not, not hints, uh, that talks about the existence of good and evil. So he's got all of these, you know, these, these worldviews that are built around deliberate action and the quality of choices. And of course, we see a lot of that stuff being circumvented in this society here. So one of the reasons, I think, that there's no happy ending is that he doesn't see this as a society that's worth redeeming. There's there's nothing here that he wants to celebrate. There's nothing here that he wants to save. He's basically created a, a you know, a hell on earth sort of scenario here from his perspective. And yeah, we're not supposed to like anybody and we're not supposed to be hoping that they could pull it off in the end. Yeah, but you know, when you say hell on earth, he, he there's a number of things going on that really are reflected in a lot of what you see in modern day society, right? Oh, yeah. Especially if you look at this whole idea of, you know, if everyone is responsible for making the decision, right, then no one is responsible for making the decision. And therefore, as you said before, there's that quote, without a soul, anything that can be imagined can be performed without remorse, right? That's diffusion of responsibility right there. And, you know, I see it all the time. As long as you have enough people agreeing with you, everybody throws up their hands and says, well, I, I didn't make the decision. I just went along with it, right? And it, it's interesting that he goes into this, you know, this this whole strange metaphysical area of soul versus mind versus consciousness and the idea that something in there is making a moral judgment about the decisions that are being made. But no matter what it is, it can still be circumvented as long as you have enough people on your side. We don't get to see what happens if the people chose to go against the designs of the government because that's basically been, you know, beaten out of them and or not beaten out of them, but necessarily, but it's, it's been manipulated out of them over the years. But there's there's a passage that I, was, that I was looking through as you were talking, or looking for as you were talking. It's on page 73. It's Correlator Jennings, 
is reciting the justification of judgment for one of their polls about the Turcosino coalition. And as he's talking, he says, the society of mankind cannot be sustained without consensus. When the ranks of dissenters reach proportions which encourage revolution, all men are endangered by disorder. Yet, throughout history, it has been shown that death alone will not still the voices of the perverse. Thus, the consensus government has adapted the, those talents of psionically gifted citizens in order to make the punishment more severe for this most heinous of crimes. It is the hope of the correlators present today and of the executioners as well that harsher punishments will lead to fewer deviates among us. So again, this comes back to that sense of control and the sense of this one-dimensional government that's based on pure consensus. I suppose that's democracy, but it's you know it's it's the the idea that everybody's going to agree or else, and that's what we've been talking about here. And again, that's you know Coons is setting this up as not a good thing. Yeah, so I had said earlier that that this felt very 1970s sci-fi to me, and I think this is this is is part of it. It's it's that government being reduced to a a, a single kind of concept, and it gets played out as you know what are the implications of this kind of stuff, but it's also set up as you know we shouldn't trust the government. You know the 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 government is you know they they're in it for themselves. They're in it to maintain control. And so there's a lot of stuff that comes out of the late 60s and the early 70s where there's some sort of weird element of, of society that everything turns on and that creates a dystopian society as a result. So you got things like, you know, Soylent Green and Brave New World and Logan's Run. And it's true that in this particular case, right, 1972, we're just coming out of the Vietnam War, which certainly didn't do anything to you know, make government look good in the minds of American society. And it's possible that you know some of this consensus or the idea that we're going to have a society where everybody is pro-government, pro-whatever the government wants to do is sort of a, a reaction to what was going on during the Vietnam era protests and saying, hey, you know, we, we can't have dissenters, right? We can't have protesters. But if you don't have dissenters and you don't have protesters, well, then what do you have? Yeah. Is, is the only alternative just raw patriotism and, and nationalism? And, and certainly there's some sense that that that's kind of what's going on here and, and that that he wants to he wants to protest against that he wants to set that up as is not a viable alternative yeah and the other thing that we see going on in this particular story is the well there's two things right there's the concept of societal control which you had just mentioned and then there's the whole idea of mind control which is right. the well number one the executioner taking over the souls of the people and imprisoning them and then basically having the same thing done to him by Weissman, right? And you know, mind control, of course, has been a staple of science fiction for many, many, many years. And in this particular case, it's the, the area where you have the external entity taking over. Of course, we've seen aliens taking over human minds and imprisoning them, which and this usually happens in book form because it doesn't really translate well into movies, at least none that I know of. You know, most movies and television shows kind of deal with the oh, hey, look, at it's Quantum Leap where Scott Bakula jumps into someone's head in the past and, and makes those people do something, and you never really know what happens to the person that was there to start with. Or you have more of the hypnosis-type Star Wars thing where it's these are not the droids you're looking for, where they kind of control the minds through hypnosis. You know, this is a very specific type of mind control we're dealing with where the, the, the consciousness that's, the original consciousness, I should say, that's in the mind is still there, still present, still knows what's going on, but yet... 
is unable to do something because someone else is running the show. Yeah, so we just did the story, Who Goes There?, where the alien is kind of sifting thoughts and, and so on and, and learns enough that the alien can take the form of and kind of replace characters. But the the implication there is, well, at first there's there's that one character, the, the one who falls asleep, who's supposed to be watching, and then he thinks that he has some dream about the thing and then later on, he's actually the monster. So it's hard to tell where it happens in there. Like, because he's still around, but he's not the monster at the beginning, but he's been influenced by the monster through some sort of mind control kind of thing. And then later actually is the alien. So at some point, he gets taken over by the alien. So, I mean, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on with that one. Yeah. I mean, you look at. You know, long-running television shows like Stargate, where you had the Gua'uld who would take people over and imprison them. And apparently, if I remember correctly, those consciousnesses were still the in the original host body that they took over. There's elements of mind control, I think, in pretty much every star or every you know long-running uh, science fiction television show, whether it's you know Star Trek, Doctor Who, like I said, Stargate. Anything that w- that ran long enough had some element of either aliens taking over people's minds or you know, other people taking over people's minds or switching minds. It, it's been around for a long time. Well, and there's a there's another concept that, that figures in here as well, because the executioner makes reference to uh, a, an Asian-sounding mental discipline, which I looked up and it doesn't exist, so it was created for the story. But it, the whole idea behind it is that he can compartmentalize his mind in ways that are useful to the society. And specifically, he's turned part of his mind into a prison for other people's souls. Um, and he, he holds them, of course, inside of himself. So it's not so much, well, it is, it's mind control, but it's also, like I said, it, it's like through mental discipline, he has the ability to to both have a defense against these these people that are trapped within him, but also this way of sort of shoring up his mind and maintaining his own consciousness in one place and then using the rest of his his brain to create a mental prison. So that's also you know, a reference to this psionic spectrum of abilities uh, that are all over the place. That's the first time that I've seen something like that where there's a mental prison that someone has maintained. I don't remember any, any other stories, at least offhand, where that's the, the outcome. Yeah, I don't recall any that where there's a, a where he where they imprison a bunch of souls. There's like I said, certainly yeah. numerous ones there where they will take over one person and imprison them, but not where they've, you know, been made into a repository. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's where I was going with that. Yeah. I mean so yeah, again, it makes reference to having three hundred thousand souls inside of him. And the one thing I've not been able to quite figure out for this entire story is what he's doing with the title, Alter Boy. Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what altar boys do, you know, they deal with church, right? They do stuff, they assist the you know, pastors or priests or whatever during ceremonies, or they're also sometimes known as like super morally pure and virtuous people, but I can't figure out what the reference is supposed to be. They do make that one reference in the story to the altar boys that cart the dead bodies off once the executioners have sucked the souls out of them. But I'm not quite sure it what reference the altar boy is to what the executioner has become at the end of the story. Unless Weissman is the altar boy <laughs> somehow. I'm not sure. 
that I could reconcile the title of the story effectively with the story itself. The story is interesting. There's a lot going on in it, and I think it's worthwhile read. But yeah, I, I, I think we need to get Koontz himself on here to explain what he was talking about with Alter Boy, if he even remembers writing the story. Well, one thing that we certainly do know about, or hopefully can remember, is our wonderful hmm, whoa, and what the fuck scale for looking at these stories. So what's your first opinion there, Bill? Where do we fall on the spectrum? My first read, I was absolutely 100% what the fuck is going on here. And on further readings, I've come around to, I still think that that's the basic framework that we're working under here. But there's enough of this exploration of of alternate forms of government and dystopia and and um and, and the government messing with people and so on that I think there's a there's a definite healthy dose of hmm that's mixed in here. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much there too, as long as especially with the initial read, right? I was also the what the fuck did I just read? We've got these Nazis being implanted in people to control other people that are imprisoned in people's minds. What is going on here, right? And then you know, once you reread it a few times, there's the I had the kind of the woe factor of realizing how the society operates and consensus and what the implications of that are. So I'm, I'm more in the woe and what the fuck scale equally for both. It's a heck of a read. You know, I, I think it's it's one that's worth exploring, like I said, but I leave it up to our readers or our listeners what they would think of it. Be interested in, in finding out what people think of it if they gave it a chance. And Dean Koontz, if you're out there, feel free to drop us a line and give us your commentary. There you go. What the hell is up with Alter Boy, dude? So now that we've covered Dean Koontz, a name that is very familiar to people but isn't really well known for science fiction, I think for our next one, we're going to go with yet another author who you, of course, know, but also is not really known for science fiction, and that would be Stephen King with a story called The Jaunt. Make sure you come back for that one, everybody. (laughs) 